very honored and very privileged to be able to introduce to all of you our 17th athletic director for Mississippi State University, John Cohen. Hi there, glad you could join us for another episode of the John Cohen Podcast. My name is Neil Price. I'm the radio announcer here at Mississippi State. John's along with us as well. And John, you've got another great guest lined up for us this week. Yeah, Mitch Barnhart, my old friend, who's the athletic director at the University of Kentucky, had a great conversation. He's the elder statesman of the Southeastern Conference now, Neil. I, I believe he's got 17 years in the league, if that's if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he, he's somebody who, who's a tremendous leader in our league and has done a great job uh, at the University of Kentucky. All right, so you had a prior relationship as a baseball coach in Mitch Barnhart's athletic department at Kentucky. And I would be interested to know how the time you spent working as a coach in that department kind of helped shape your ideas and and your ambitions toward the job that you hold now at Mississippi State. Well, I, I, I've always said this. I, I have great been role models, and certainly Mitch was one of those role models. He was a guy who would come down to my office, and we'd talk about baseball, but we'd talk about other things. We'd, we'd talk about issues within the department, and um, – I just always felt like he was somebody who just never took that hat off of being an athletic director. He wore it 24 hours a day, just like I wore being a baseball coach 24 hours a day. And uh, I, I think we just had a, a really special relationship and, and I, that, that I will always tre- treasure. I got to work in that circle with, with Mitch Barnhart for 12 years, too. And I think you will agree with me when I say this as someone who was on the periphery you never saw him sweat. He's able to do everything, and he always remained very even-keeled, very competitive, but very even-keeled, and I think that's probably one of the reasons he's been as successful as he's been for so long. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That guy's really competitive. People probably, you know, they, they look at the exterior, and they make these assumptions that he's not competitive. I think you and I both might know somebody else who fits that, that bill. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's as competitive as anybody around, and uh, – you know, he, he's just somebody, he cares about the kids, he cares about his staff, and boy, one of the things we talk about in the podcast is how many different athletic directors he has had work for him at the University of Kentucky. A bunch of them, and I'm sure you guys will get into names and facts and figures and all that. Promises to be a very intriguing discussion today. Uh, University of Kentucky Athletics Director Mitch Barnhart and John Cohen here on the John Cohen Podcast. Mitch Barnhart, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks. Good to be in Starkville and good to spend some time with you guys and a beautiful day. Yeah, yeah. We're about, what are we, about four hours from, three hours from kickoff here in, in Starkville. Um, Mitch, I want to start from the beginning. You grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, mm-hmm. right? Kansas City, Kansas. Let's get Kansas that right. City, Kansas. Let's get, that, let's get that right. All right. Yeah, I'm on the Kansas I, side. I, I'm just always very curious yeah. asking about these areas. Yeah. You, you, you were born in 59. Yep. So... As a child growing up in Kansas City, Kansas, mm-hmm. like you're really young, but it's the turbulent 60s, right? Mm-hmm. There's civil rights going on. The yep. Vietnam is going on full. Can, yeah. can you remember anything about those things, even though you're a really small child? Yeah, you know, the, the first real big memory in terms of, of social, cultural things that were going on was I remember where I was when JFK was killed. So I remember being in uh, the, the kitchen and, and my mom coming in crying uh, when 
the news broke that JFK was was shot. And you were four. I was four. Okay. I was four years old, and so I remember that vividly. And uh, you know, and you didn't when you're four, you don't know what that means, but you know it's bad. And uh, so I remember uh, the turmoil of that and how everything sort of came to a stop in our country. And then, of course, there was an escalation of those kind of events in the '60s with um, different, um, you know, incidents of you know Martin Luther King and and Bobby Kennedy and, and some of those things and George Wallace and and it began to be a, a sort of a different time and Vietnam was going on and and uh, and people were talking about you know who was coming back from war and who was going and some didn't come back and and you know and it was really a, a weird time to try and understand all of that and and not understanding that uh, that the war wasn't being fought you know it, when you're growing up you play you know cowboys and Indians and you play uh, you know, war in the back in the backyard, and it doesn't get real uh, for you until you get a little older and you begin to see what the reality of all that is. And and um, so, a really interesting time in the '60s. Um, a lot of social unrest, the protest, um, the the different. Uh, you know, we didn't have social media back then; there was none, so everything traveled so slowly. And uh, and, and by the time it finally got to you, it had already changed again. You know, and so a really interesting time. Uh, in high schools, uh, you were in high schools, and it was a, a climate of change, and there was this new thing called marijuana that got introduced into the drug scene, and it was it was really bizarre, and and uh, so a lot of things you you keep in your eye on as a young kid. Mitch, I, I not many people realize how competitive you are. You're in a letter, you're in a leadership position, mm-hmm. so you don't you don't get to show emotion very often. But I I am kind of intrigued by the fact of mm-hmm. of what you know the. Six, seven, eight-year-old mm-hmm. in Kansas City, Kansas, mm-hmm. Mitch Barnhart looked like competitively in sports. I mean, I know how competitive you are now. Yeah. What was that kid like, and how hard did he compete yeah. in everything he was doing? You know, I love. I was. I was that guy. You know, that when back then, and I go to. It's changed so much that that kids play one sport essentially now. Once you dial into one sport, you're in. And back then, I mean, you, you went from season to season, and it was you played, and you you know, and it was all hours of the night. You, there were no video games, which I was thankful for, and and so we would literally, my mom would have to call us in off the streets, and we had we had a street football game we played every night. Our guys on our street played, and it was competitive, and and it was like Billy just broke his foot, you know, or broke his, oh, he'll be fine, just <laughs> you know, you know, it's all good, you know. And I mean, there was injuries and no trainers, and I mean, it was way past dark, and you're getting called in from the asphalt. We played on the asphalt, and it was it, it was supposed to be touch, but it was tackle, and oh, so yeah. it got good. And uh, and I love playing the games, and and uh, I was really small, you know, I was a, a small guy. Um, I didn't grow very fast. I was short and stumpy and too slow, um, so I had to make up for it in other ways. And I'm and I'm you know, hopefully there was a competitive spirit about all that that I enjoyed and. And, uh, and then as I grew, it was a little late for that. So I got into other – but I played a lot of sports. I played baseball. I played football. I wrestled when I was growing up. I uh, was on swim team. I played tennis. You know, I mean, I did it all. If it was a ball and a bat or a racket or a club, I was in it. You know, Well, legend has it, Mitch. Le- here's the legend has <laughs> uh-oh, it. Uh-oh. At a very young age, you were already doing sports writing for, for a local newspaper. At a, how, how old were you when you started doing that? 14. I was 14. Okay. So I was 14 years old when I started doing that, and they paid me uh, $5 for an article. Um, and that was if it was a fully written article. I didn't get a $5 for the clip. I got it. You, know, you typed it out on, on the old typewriter with carbon paper. I kept a copy. They kept a copy. And and my mom would drive me over to, to deliver it to the editor. And what were you covering? I would cover anything that, that they didn't want to cover. 
So sometimes if it was a high school event or somewhere, somewhere they'd say, okay, can you get to the high school event and cover that game for us? Or can you, um, boxing was a big one in our area. We had some really good local boxing and no one wanted to cover, but I love boxing. And uh, so I ended up messing around with that a little bit. How, how did that happen though? How, how um, does a 14 year old find themselves? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't a school newspaper. I mean, this is the started, real deal. Yeah, right? So I took a class and I bumped into a guy and, and he said, Hey, you know, you're, you're pretty good at writing. And, uh, would you be interested? Yeah, sure. And, and, and John, you know, I'm, and it goes back to my, our family a little bit. We didn't have a lot of money and, and I was just hungry from, I was going to do anything that made money. So I, I, every little job you could give me, I had, had a yard mowing service. I had 14 yards. And so I did yard mowing, you know, paid mowing stuff and did my own, my own thing. I dragged that mower all over the city. And then I had the, then I got into the, the, the writing piece of it. And now that was really good because all of a sudden it began to open up doors and they'd say, Hey, if you'd go sell an, can you, there's this program, can you write the ad for this thing for the program? And if you sell an ad to it, we'll give you another 10 bucks. You serious? 10 bucks. That's awesome. You know? <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm like money grubbing, you know, and I'm putting money away. And then I worked, I worked at a variety of jobs, but that was how I got started in doing all this stuff. And so the more that I could, uh, the more that I did, it seemed like the more the doors opened up, and and that's sort of what put me through college. To be honest with you, was the opportunity to um, sell program ads and radio ads for local radio and and the university's football and basketball game programs. They said, if you'll do it, we'll give you a piece of it, and then that went successfully well. And they end up saying, hey, why don't you just uh, go to school for free and we'll and do all of our sports information media relations work at Ottawa, which is where I went to school and. And that's how it all came about. So I just sort of made a pathway out of all that stuff. So you're doing this at age 14. Mm-hmm. At what point did you know that that's what you wanted? You wanted to be involved professionally yeah. in, in athletics. I, I always tell people it, it, it sort of coalesced. There were a lot of things that coalesced in the 70s. You know, if you think about it, there was about five or six really, really big events that coalesced into, into an opportunity for Mitch Barnhart. Um, one um, there was this small company out in Beaverton, Oregon that decided to get into the shoemaking business in, seven, in the early 70s with Steve Prefontaine. That went okay. Um, and, <laughs> I think and, that, and, that, and, that worked out all right. It worked out okay. So they started out, that, that happens. Then you have this thing called uh, multimedia rights, and a company out of Lexington, Kentucky started. And there was a gentleman by the name of Jim Host, and he started a multimedia rights company that began um, capitalizing on radio television rights and that became then you had another company that started in Birmingham Alabama by a gentleman named Bill Battle and he started this thing that said hey we're going to capture people's likeness and it's a company called CLC and we're going to trademark those things and make those things that happened in the 70s and there was this other things court case called Title IX and it opened up this incredible avenue in the 70s for women to participate in sports which opened up coaching opportunities and other opportunities administratively then there's this other thing called um, this small television thing called ESPN that opened in the mid seventies, and it, it said, "Uh oh, we're going to do twenty four seven sports broadcasting three sixty five. No, you can't. You can't do it. There's not enough programming available." I think they made it, and then there was this last piece that happened in the early eighties, and it was Oklahoma and Georgia sued the NCAA for the rights to capture their own television rights. And when they did that, those six events, John, in, in historical perspective for Mitch Barnard, I don't know about anybody else. But it avalanched openings in sports, marketing, television, media rights, you name it. All of a sudden, this, this highway of jobs opened up. And next thing you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm young, I'm 16, 17 years old, coming out of high school thinking, dang, there's, there might be something to hang in there. So I thought the marketing route, I thought I could do the marketing piece. And then I look in the right, I thought, you know, but and then that just opened up a variety of thoughts. And I was fortunate, so blessed to be able to run into some people that said, hey, man, if you do this, you can. You got a chance. Let's let's go back to Ottawa. You, you go to Ottawa mm-hmm. out of high school. 
first of all, what? how did you end up there? Mm-hmm. And second of all, I, I know you played golf there, yeah. but while you're playing golf, yeah. it's rumored that you worked in sports information. Yeah. You did a whole host yeah. of things while at Ottawa. How, how did that change your experience? Well, it, when I was when I was in coming out of high school, um, our family didn't have a whole lot of money. As I said earlier, my mom worked really hard, but we just didn't have a lot. And so I needed as much help as I could get. Uh, public institutions were fine, um, and I did okay. Well, my grades were solid, but it was one of those things. You, Ottawa came to me, and they sort of put this little package of things. If you did this and this and this, would you be interested? And yeah, so long story short, it, they made it more affordable for me to go to college there. It was the greatest experience of my life. Uh, met some incredible people there. It's a small college, as Daniel Boone, or as uh, Daniel Webster said, it is a small college, but those there are those of us that love it. And it's a 750, 800 people in the school, and, and it it was where I needed to be. It was a small place that paid attention to, to what I was doing and made me sort of focus on what I did. And, and uh, I was they didn't have a sports information department, so that was part of the deal. The deal was if, if I do all your sports information media work for everything, let me repeat, everything, all sports. While you're trying to play while golf. I'm, while I'm going to school and playing golf, I was a sports editor for the student newspaper. Then I became the editor of the student newspaper. I was a president of student body, so I had a few things going. Golly. And... Not not to be diminished. Yeah, you have a really good friend who's dating someone who might be important to you down the road. Yeah, correct. And uh, this woman named Connie, her best friend, yeah, was somebody that you were dating. Dating, correct, correct. At and, and she ends up being the maid of honor in our wedding. <laughs> so you know, it was, it was one of those great thing, great stories. Connie was a basketball player at Ottawa and a volleyball player. She played two sports. Um, and that's where we met. We met through that interaction. Um, I, I, I jokingly said I wrote some great stories about her to get her to like me. Um, and so uh, she was tremendously talented. That, those days she was 6'1", six, 6'2", six, and, and one of the tallest people on the court. Now she'd be a really good point guard, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, um, so we met, and we had a lot going on. But I mean, it, it, burning the midnight out oil was nothing. I mean, and, and then go back to it, we didn't have computers. There was no computers. So you did everything on an electric typewriter or a manual typewriter, and you carboned it, and, and I was up to, and you did, all your stats were done by hand. And so we did everything by hand. And uh, then you called them in, and you had to read them by. And so it was a painstaking process, so there was a lot to it. But that's what got me through school. And, you know, and um, I tremendously enjoyed my time at Ottawa, and, and uh, it was a special, special time in my life. I met Connie there. We dated a couple of years. She went on to physical therapy school and, and stuck with me, and We've been married 38 years with three kids and two grandkids. So this sense of urgency, you're doing all these different things. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think, Mitch, and I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this, sure. but you, you lost your father at a very young age. You're yep. 10 years old. Mm-hmm. This sense of urgency, would that have existed, do you think, had you not had this tremendous loss in your life? No, I, I don't I don't know. I think that it would have been, um, you would have been more... Um, uh, I think someone. You're, uh, there's an old saying: you don't you don't prepare the road for your children; you prepare your children for the road. And uh, and I think that um, I was prepared for the road by my mom. My mom helped me prepare for the road. She was a tough lady, and she's still alive and doing well in Kansas City. And um, I think she did a good job of preparing us for the road. I'm not sure I would have been as prepared for the road had my dad lived. Um, I would have if I had my choice. I certainly want him to live. Uh, he had a, a bout with cancer, and he died when I was just turned 11. And and so it was um, a really tough time, um, and uh, but I was, uh, you know, I, the one thing I'll never forget, the, what he taught me, he goes, he's my coach, he coached me in football and baseball and anything like that, he was a tough guy, and he taught us toughness, and I think that, uh, you know, it was, 
uh, I, I, sometimes I think when you grow up and you don't, you didn't have a whole lot, and you you wanted to. I saw things that other folks had, and, I, and it made me want to go pursue that. And so I worked at it, and uh, I knew that uh, I, I never wanted for my mom. She provided. We never starved. We always had meals on the table. Um, she took good care of us. Our home was always warm, and uh, we had a good place to live. Uh, so we were very blessed and all that. There, she was she was fabulous. She worked worked her her tail off, you know. And but I don't think that, that you would have had that sense of of purpose, urgency, whatever you want to call it. Had that not that event it was a life changing event in a, in a very difficult way. You're at Ottawa and you're going to leave and you're mm-hmm. going to go to Ohio U, which is the Harvard of sport mm-hmm. management. Um, How I got in, we have no idea to this day. <laughs> but but it, it was really the only program of its kind for a long time, yeah. Mitch. And, and I guess my question, how did you find out about it? How, how did you get involved with that? And who were some of the people that you got to rub yeah. elbows with at Ohio University? So when, it, when, I was at, when I was at Ottawa, there was a gentleman that worked at a place called William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. And, as, as I'm, and I was up there doing my deal with our basketball teams, and, and uh, he bumped into me and he said, young man, he said, there's this place. And he said that uh, you can get your master's in sports administration. You look like you're a hardworking guy. Let me sort of guide you through this. Well, it turned out he was on the board of directors or the board of whatever governors of, of the sports administration school at, at Ohio U. And, um, and I, I think he, to this day, I'll bet he doesn't remember that conversation, but I remember it. So I remember going back and, and doing some research and trying to figure out you know, what I could do. And, and so we, uh, we researched Ohio U, and, and uh, I apply, and and miraculously got in I'll never forget taking the GRE so for all those that don't like the GRE those standardized tests they, they mail you your results back in those days I remember standing in the student union at my mailbox and using my combination to get my mailbox open I see this envelope in there no one ever sent me mail so to get a piece of mail was like a really cool deal you know I take out the piece of mail and open up the envelope and my college advisor's walking by and he goes what do you got there and I said I ain't got my GRE results he looked over my shoulders you're not getting in anywhere <laughs> <laughs> and I said well that's great I said, and so he walked off. That was the last piece of advice he had for me on that. <laughs> but you did get in. I did. I did. I, I think. I think uh, I did okay on the interview, and uh, and and I learned a valuable lesson in the interview about you know staying committed to your principles and what you do. And and, and I thought that was important uh, that when I go back, um, and I ask him why, you know, how did I get in, and, and what what because my score wasn't that good. He said, you know, when you interview, we asked you some things that questioned your principles and you wouldn't waver. You stayed committed to your principles. And, there, and again, I go back to the old saying, methods are many and principles are few. Your methods will always change. Your principles never do. And my principles have never changed. And so we've tried to remain principled in what we do, um, realizing that methods and the way you get there, they can change. Those things will adjust as time and technology and things like that go, but your principles must remain true to who you are. When, when you were there, did you realize that you are at the mecca of sport administration, the Jeremy Foley's. I mean, the list of people who have come yeah. through that program is pretty, pretty special. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. I, I, you know, I was, I was such a young guy from Ottawa, and, 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 I, and then when you saw the names, you look at the directory, and it was like the directory was a who's who, and, I'm, and I saw those people, they were, Nike was coming in and taking a bunch of folks, and ESPN was taking a bunch of folks, and I'm going, wow, this, the world was bigger than what I thought. You know, I thought at one time it was just, college athletics and how do I get back to the University of Kansas or Kansas State or somewhere back home that I knew you know and and all of a sudden the, the world got big and then I began to realize you know what there's more opportunities out here than we think and I, and but I also made the decision at that point in time and I told Connie I said man I said I gotta we can't be afraid to move around 
So Connie's with you she, in graduate school. Well, she was doing her graduate stuff in physical therapy school, and she was actually doing her residency in different places. And we got married just after we finished graduate school, after I finished that my first year, and that began our journey. And and uh, she was uh, she did three different residencies in different places around the Midwest, and her last one was up just uh, outside, I think, Toledo, Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. And and that was close, at least close to me. We could see each other occasionally. And, and you know, I, always, I, I laugh about the technology today. If, if you had, if you told a young couple today that you had to have uh, this, you do without cell phone. I mean, I remember the Sunday night phone calls was ten minutes because anything past nine o'clock, that ten minute phone call is real expensive. We couldn't afford <laughs> that. Right. That's and, right. and you send a letter and everything like that. And guys, you know, uh, how many times have we had kids say they've ever sent anybody a letter? You know, it just doesn't happen in today's world. You send them a text or an email, but uh, it was a special time, and I think it created a different relationship. And we journeyed out. We got married in '82, and then we took off. And uh, head to San Diego State. San Diego State, which is the next, I was going to bring this up. You, yeah. you guys head to San Diego State. You're an intern. Yeah. I would imagine as an intern, the dollars aren't great, which, yeah. which really takes me to my next question, Mitch, which was something you and I deal with a lot, you you more than I. But the, the kids who say, I want to do what you do, mm-hmm. right? Does it immediately take you to a San Diego State and say, man, I, I'm basically working for nothing, mm-hmm. trying to get experience. And oh, by the way, you're working with a guy named Bill Byrne, mm-hmm. who ends up being you know, a giant in the, oh, the industry. Yeah. Um, how did all that come about? And, and, and tell me what you took from that experience at San Diego State. Well, I think it came about because no one else wanted the internship. Um, so I was sort of fortunate that that was sort of last man standing. Um, I, I was a guy that uh, looking for a chance uh, I didn't come from the, the mecca of schools at Ottawa to, to, to Ohio U, and there were some folks. I was in the class. The people in my class were a pretty remarkable group of people. And so I was sort of one of those folks that um, was waiting for an opportunity, and, and San Diego State called, and Bill offered me a chance to come out there, and, and we get out there, and it was a very, as you said, there wasn't a whole lot of upside to the financial piece. I'm thankful my wife was a physical therapist. She found a job pretty quickly, and I'll never forget Bill saying, hey, don't worry, I got you this side job. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, you're going to work security for, for Kobe's swap meet at the sports arena down on the border. And you're going, what? So, And that's what I did on Saturdays and Sundays. So and essentially you were a bouncer. Correct. <laughs> you had to make sure that there was peace right on the border. That's right, as, as, we're doing, as we're doing that stuff. So it was, it was quite funny. Uh, and I'm never, you know, they'd always give you a couple certificates, get the hamburgers on Sunday. That's how Connie and I ate. We'd always go a couple of hamburgers at this place across the street and head to the beach, and that was our entertainment. You know, it was, it was a simple way of life, but it was pretty cool. It was fun. And uh, Bill was awesome to us. He left pretty quickly after I got there to go to Oregon. And, and at the time, you know, and Bill was really, really bright, really wonderful administrator, and he had a son that we will probably get to later in this conversation. <laughs> um, but, uh, Bill was really good to our family and, and took us to Oregon with him and said, hey, why don't you come along? And, and I became the uh, full-time fundraiser at the University of Oregon in Portland. I became the regional fundraiser, and that was an interesting task. I was thrown up there by myself um, in Portland. Uh, the university's in Eugene, 80, you know, a couple hundred miles, 150 miles away or whatever it is. And, and uh, so it was a way different experience than being on a campus, and I was just up there, you know, trying to find my way. I tell you what it did though, it taught you how to have initiative and be organized and, and not be afraid to go meet people and do some stuff. And, and I thought those were great experiences for me, both as the starvation in San Diego and, <laughs> and, and, the, and the ability to do it. But I, I think again, not being afraid to move. I think a lot of times what I expect to go to this place, never move, and it'd be matriculate right on up the ladder and, and get paid at an incredible, it just, that's not reality. 
And I think so. I think the, the uh, part of the advice is you got to be you can't be afraid to move. And I think the experience is coast to coast and uh, really, really important. It's way different. It is college athletics, but it's different from coast to coast. It looks remarkably different. Help me on the timeline. Do you do you leave San Diego and go to Oregon with Bill Byrne? Or do you head to SMU from there? No, I went to Oregon, and then I went from SMU uh, to get uh, to SMU from Oregon. Uh, we went uh, there in '83, and we were there from '83 to '86. Um, my family was still back in Kansas, and, and and frankly, we were young. And I think that um, discretion probably being the better part of of our deal, we probably should have stayed at Oregon a lot longer. And Bill was so good to us, but I think we got a little little antsy, a little homesick, a little bit. That sounds crazy. Uh, but I think just being around our family and being back in the Midwest was something we both wanted to do um, if we could. And being on a campus was important. We were not on a campus at Oregon State, at Oregon, not Oregon State. We were in Oregon. And, and that felt um, a little bizarre, to be honest with you. And, to, and SMU offered us a chance to be on a campus and be involved in it a little bit. And, and uh, so that uh, we made that move. Uh, and, but I won't regret those times. I met Bill, uh, Greg Byrne. Uh, Rich Brooks. I mean, I can go down the list. There were some wonderful people. Herb Yamanaka. Uh, there were some folks at Oregon. I'll always remember the, how well they treated us. And, and for the very short time, we were, there, we were there for about a year, and then we went to SMU. So you're at SMU. Correct me if I'm wrong here. How, how old are you? 23 years old yeah. uh-huh. at SMU. And Mitch, I guess there's no other way to say this. You're, you're, you're working kind of in the periphery, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden – there's incredible, incredible turmoil at mm-hmm. SMU, mm-hmm. and you're on the outside of this looking in, and you know I mean, SMU is in real trouble with the NCAA. I'm just mm-hmm. curious how you took all that in, and and what what it was like to find out that mm-hmm. you're at an institution that suddenly is in a little bit of trouble. Well, two things. One, I realized how naive I was. You know, I I never envisioned that people would play by a different set of rules. That didn't even cross my mind. I mean, it, my sense of, of fairness, um, right and wrong, would never allow me to think that, in, an, in a very naive way, that people would do that, that they would take shortcuts. And uh, so um, the friends that I hung with down there, the people that Connie and I had dinner with, and. And, our, and truly our closest friends, it was just not a, something that would cross our minds. A great academic institution. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you're walking into this place yeah. knowing they're one of the elite football programs Absolutely. in the country at that time. Absolutely. And little did I know that it was carnage in the conference, too. You know I mean? It <laughs> yeah. was it was like everybody's like, okay, who who's the last person standing in this deal? And, and uh, SMU had a, an incredible run going. Um, some remarkable athletes and some really, really good people. And, you know, and so it was – it was a little bit hard for me to, to process a little bit as, as a guy that uh, just didn't understand all of it. And I didn't understand that how you would even think to think that that was a, a thing. And um, so as time went on and things began to get ugly and you, you hear the rumblings and again, no social media, keep in mind now, this wasn't something like you picked up and there was a new tweet about something. This, this stuff had to happen over snail mail and all that stuff, the letters and phone calls that you couldn't, I mean, there was no, and it was a private institution. There's no FOI. There's nothing like that. I mean, okay, so, I mean, if, if you weren't in the middle of it, you wouldn't know. And so uh, I remember going to, to to the house one day. I went home, and I got a phone call from the athletic director at the time, Bob Hitch, who is a dear, dear friend. I just talked to him about two weeks ago. And uh, a gentleman that I have great respect for. Bob is a good man. And, and uh, 
he said, I need you to come to my office. And he may not remember this to this day. I don't know if he does or not, but he, he said, will you come to my office? I said, absolutely. And there was about four or five of us, maybe six of us in there, and we were all young guys. And he says, now, you guys don't understand what's happening here, and you had nothing to do with any of this, but I want to protect you. I want to make sure you don't your careers aren't over. He goes, so this is, we're in some trouble. He goes, this thing isn't going to go well. And he goes, I'm going to advise you. You need to get on the road. Get on the road. You need to find your way out of here. He goes, I'm going to help you. And so he did. He helped five or six young guys find their way and get to other spots where they, you know, they could continue their careers. And I'll be, I'll be ever thankful for that conversation. Mitch, how many years later? You're at Tennessee next. Yeah. But how many years later did it come full circle to you? Did Did you realize mm -hmm. what was actually going on yeah. at SMU? I, I think until you read the report. You didn't understand everything, you know, and then you began to see your name, and then it began, the pieces began to say, okay, that made sense. And then I will, I'll never forget, uh, Bob came to me years later, and he came to visit Connie and I, and um, he and his wife Judy, who one of the most wonderful people in the world, and they came and visited us, and they said, and we sat down, and he just told me some of the, you know, hey, this is sort of the, the reality of what we were dealing with, and, and, um, and you go, okay. Well, I'm starting to get it, you know, and 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 uh, I'll. How big an impact did that have that on was, you, Mitch? Later a, on, when you became yeah a leader and administrator. Yeah, I, I think I think that's part of the, the challenge in today's world. Although we have social media and we have all this stuff, I think people have this incredible thought process that they know everything about everything, and there's always something more. And so, for us to be judging, to be the interpreter of intent. Uh, to be the subjective ruler overall, I think is a little bit premature on everyone's part, even in today's world, uh, because you just don't know the heart of people. And I think that's the one thing that I've, I've tried to remember, that you know that there is more to the story. Uh, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. <laughs> that's you right. Know, and yeah. and uh, probably don't even know who Paul Harvey is, but anyway. They uh, should. They should know who yeah. Paul Harvey is, yeah. but they don't. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think that that had a huge impact on me, and not the least of which, never to forget that there are young folks that are around that are in our care that are depending upon us to be able to, to try and help them along in their careers. And Bob was critical. Had he not done that, and he connected me up to Doug Dickey at Tennessee, and had he not done that, I'm probably out of college athletics, and, and we're not having this conversation. So you're at Tennessee, and you're introduced to the Southeastern Conference for yep. the very first time, mm -hmm. uh, up close and personal. And, and Tennessee – has it rolling? I oh, mean, yeah. they're in, in football, they they got it going strong. Yep. Um, what what clearly you're in, you're in a new area of the country. What what was that first impression of the Southeastern Conference? Um, you know, it was um, a little overwhelming. Um, I'd been obviously at SMU. We'd been to Texas A and M, and we'd been to Texas and Baylor and some of those those places, and they were impressive. You know some of those folks and some of those places, that, but you you came to they, if 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 that conference at that time was level five, the SEC was like nine. You know it was it was an amazing leap. You walked into these incredible facilities, these incredible campuses. The fan bases were so strong, John, and and it was a it was like wow, we have we have certainly arrived. We have arrived at the big time, and there wasn't any question about that. It was it was remarkably different and. So um, Neyland Stadium was uh, we were part of the renovations on a couple of different occasions with Coach Dickey and that, and that was a really special time in my career to be able to work alongside him and to be able to do that. And we had some incredible athletes, including Peyton and, and some of those folks at the tail end of, of my time at, at Tennessee. And 
Um, but I, you, you felt like, man, you were a part of something really big. And the SEC, I mean, there were some iconic people in there. Now you're talking about uh, Roy Kramer as the commissioner. I mean, you're not talking about a guy that really, really moved the needle uh, for what this league was all about. He uh, he was, had a, such vision for what he wanted the SEC to be. And, and then you, and you looked at the the folks that were coaching back then, the Vince Dooley's of the world, and and uh, you, you think about you know the the Johnny Majors and then the Phil Fulmers at Tennessee and. And you looked around our league, and you still had Pat Dye in the league. And um, I mean, I could go down the list. Sure. It, was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. The ads were amazing, you know. And and uh, so a pretty iconic group of people. And you know, Pat Summit's beginning to make her incredible, incredible impact on women's sports and women's basketball at Tennessee. And so you watched all that stuff. And you're as a young guy, you keep in mind I was still only 26 years old. And uh, so you you look at that and your your eyes are wide open at that point. It, it's a uh, it's a pretty special time. So how old are you when? And I know you're there for 12 years. Mm-hmm. All of your children were born in, in mm-hmm. Knoxville. Yep. How old are you when Corvallis, Oregon, Oregon State mm-hmm. knocks on your door to become the athletic director there? So I, I make five different, four or five different runs at AD jobs, and I'm getting discouraged because I think, boy, I'm ready. I'm, I'm more than ready, and and. Uh, and it's, you know, it's funny how it all works out. God has a plan for all of us, and, and my plan was uniquely to go to Oregon State. So Oregon State was in a little bit of trouble itself. It was some financial disarray. and and uh, Big debt. Big, big debt. And uh, not quite accurate in their assessment when they hired me. Um, <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. Um, but I'll never forget, you know, that uh, we're on our way out there on the flight on the way out. and. I'm so excited. I can't wait. This is it. Pac-10 job. It's going to be awesome. And um, we're on the plane, and I'm just I'm a little giddy, to be honest with you. I got I got this all worked out. I got my man mind what I'm going to say and how I'm going to frame it. My wife and Connie goes, this is not good. It's not going to be good. So we get there, and we go through the interview process, and, man, I'm coming out of going, my eyes are like, oh, no, what have we gotten ourselves into? And we get on the plane to get on the way plane. I said, this is not good. She goes, this is going to be great. <laughs> I said, are you nuts? Did you just not go through what I just went through? And so um, she says, they're going to call you in about 24 hours. And you're going to get offered the job. And she goes, I think we ought to go. And uh, I said, well, we'll see. So sure enough, Dr. Risser called and, uh, when I was 38 years old. And uh, I'd set one of my five goals that I had when I was 17, 18 years old. I wanted to be an AD by the time I was 40. And so, I, you know, and and I don't know if that's the right thing to do or not do. It was a stupid one of those things you did when you were a teenager, and I wrote it down. And, and I was a teen, I was an AD when I was 38, and uh, went there. And, and man, we had a great run. We had so much, and I can honestly say, as much fun as I've ever had in my career, I had at Oregon State. We had a blast. There was nothing we didn't try. Everything was wide open. I mean, you know, we were doing, we were trying to get people to come to our football games back then and they said we had women that said they wouldn't come because they didn't want to break into their exercise routine so we opened up an exercise thing on a sidewalk where they could do their yogas and things like that all and we were shooting fireworks off disturbing everybody and we had all sorts of stuff we we did crazy stuff and people came and it, it was just it was an energy thing more than anything else john if if energy i mean if um memory serves me right oregon state when you pull in there mm-hmm. i mean the, the football history Terrible. It's pretty dismal. <laughs> I mean, the only sport that I can think of where, where, where there was a modicum of success was basketball. There was mm-hmm. some basketball success. And it had fallen dramatically. Right. It, it reminds me a little bit of the Kansas State before Bill Snyder thing. Mm-hmm. And, and what you did in your time there is remarkable when mm-hmm. you consider 
where it was mm-hmm. and where you got it to, mm-hmm. especially in football. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the before and after yeah. of, of where you took it to. So here, here's the irony of ironies. Um, so Mike Riley is the football coach um, our first year. And uh, he ends up leaving, has a, a decent season. We were a little under 500, but we beat Oregon in double overtime. And he ends up taking the San Diego Chargers job. And so we just can't afford to keep him. Um, it's they're, they're paying way more money than we can afford. And uh, so we go on the search. And here's the, here's the fine line of the world of college of, and, and sports. So the Seattle Seahawks have this coach by the name of Dennis Erickson. And his owner had told him, if you guys make the playoffs, you keep your job. If you don't make the playoffs, you don't get to keep your job. This is before the days of instant replay. They're playing the New York Jets in the last game of the season. Last game of the season, Vinny Testaverde runs, I think it was Vinny Testaverde, runs a little bootleg around the outside. And he does not get into the end zone, but the referees rule it a touchdown. On instant replay, it would have been overturned, and he would not have had a touchdown, and the Seahawks would have gone to the playoffs, and Dennis Erickson would not have been available to be a coach. With instant replay, he would have still been coaching. That's amazing. And so when he gets fired, he's looking for a job. We call Dennis Erickson. He comes to Corvallis, flips the script. Wow. Fine line of instant replay. I'm telling you. It's incredible. So it was funny, and and Dennis was uh, a blast to work with, a blast to work. We had so much fun together and and a lot of great stories and culminated in the Fiesta Bowl, the Pac-10 Championship. I went to Fiesta Bowl and played Notre Dame and, and obviously uh, had a big blowout win. You have a young kid working for you in the department there uh, at Oregon mm-hmm. State named Greg Byrne. Yeah. So you worked for his father. Yeah. You, you hired Greg Byrne. What was I'm, – I'm imagining Greg's probably 20s. Oh, yeah. Mid-20s. Oh, yeah. What, what was mid-20s Greg Byrne like in your department? Great energy. You know, he was – and that was what we had. We had a bunch of high-energy folks – um, we had a lot of fun. Like I said, you know, the, the car rides were great. Um, again, before social media, easy email just had started in, in 1998. And so that was sort of a new deal. Everybody, I mean, most of this generation can't understand that. They think it's been around for forever, but the car rides were great. Our state was so uh, excited to have somebody out talking about the beeves and Greg and I spent so much time on the road together and, and going places in the coast. And, and so a lot of time in the car. A lot of late nights and driving in the rain in Oregon, you know, and uh, but it was really good times and and uh, people were excited and and he had great energy for for what we were doing and a tremendous. Greg was incredibly uh, bright. Uh, he'd been around the business his whole life. He understood it, um, and uh, he cared deeply. And so uh, his passion for winning and being a part of that was. Um, was equal to the rest of us and and uh it was just it was a special time for all of our families we it was a family deal we all sort of did it together and and uh, again i go back and look at the funny things that we did and uh i could go on and on it's um, but he you knew he was a really talented young administrator and he there was he made no bones about it he wanted to be an ad (laughs) and uh um so we our, our family sort of grew up uh, together a little bit. Obviously, he was much, much, much younger than ours. <laughs> and uh, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, he was a, a great friend and administrator with us. And then uh, when I left to come to Kentucky, uh, it was if he wanted to come, there was no doubt that I was going to bring Greg with me. Now that brings up a great point. So you mold this Oregon State thing. 
you, you take this lump of clay and you mold it and mm-hmm. mold it and and you had some you know things happen with Dennis Erickson and you get this program to a level that had never been before. Mm-hmm. How, how hard is it to create that that family that that yeah. you know you said it's some of the most fun you've ever had mm-hmm. in the business. And then you get this incredible opportunity at Kentucky. How hard was it to walk away from everything that you had yeah. built in Corvallis? It was hard uh, for a lot of reasons. And I think people think that you can just pick up and drop that stuff and go on about your business. And, and you really don't think that way. It's it, Kentucky basketball. I mean, it, it's that big. I mean, it's if you arguably say it's one of the uh, top ten iconic brands in all of sport, um, you know, you can – you can say you've got the Yankees, you've got the Cowboys, you've got, you know, whatever, the the Lakers, you know. And then you said in, in the college realm there's, you know, Kentucky basketball is one of those. And you sit there and, and having spent 12 years here and traveled up the road to Lexington when I was in the SEC, you sit there and say, that's one of those. If they call, you got to listen. And so they called. And um, I went in and had a talk. I had a great president at Oregon State at the time. And, and I went in and talked to him and said, Dr. Risser, here's the deal. And he looked at me real. He sort of cocked his head, and he said, "You know, I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to be happy when you leave, but you got to go." He said, uh, "You need to take it." And he was, and uh, he was gracious. He was unbelievable, and and so it was a hard deal. Um, and we were walking into a difficult time at Kentucky because they were on football probation. There were some really integrity pieces that we were struggling with, but at the end of the day, it was back in the SEC, which Connie and I both knew we loved the South. We loved the SEC. Uh, we experienced some really cool stuff out there, but the opportunity to get back. There's only at that time there was only 12 of those jobs, right? And so now there's 14 of them. Um, to be in the SEC um, was an important deal for us, and we knew it was a great opportunity. And I called Coach Dickey. I sought his advice, and and he said, "Look, that's that's one of the great ones." You know, Mitch, much like the Oregon State situation, in terms of debt and and having to to realign mm-hmm. some financial situations at Oregon State, you come to Kentucky, and they're coming off an, an NCAA probe mm-hmm. that was extremely serious. Um, you know, I, I'm curious as to when you're interviewing there, I, I know that, that, that they've got to get somebody with incredible integrity to take over mm-hmm. the program. Not not to say that anybody before you didn't, yeah, but how much pressure did you feel early on that, that we've got to toe the, the line here? Yeah, you, you didn't realize it until you got into – some of the weeds of just, you name it, uh, anything that happened, all of a sudden people are asking, hey, did you do it this way? Did you do that? And and everything you did got questioned. And I'd never had that happen to me before. Um, the reality of, of, of having people, reporters, media, on everything that we did, um, question the audits, and the, the, it was just really overwhelming. And uh, I was a little cocky. When I first started thinking, oh, we did this at Oregon State, we'll just come in here, we'll just take that same blueprint, and we'll just, boom, it'll happen. And there was a sense of a little punch in the nose, humility that I, that got me. Um, you know, there was a couple things that happened early on, and it was a stark reality for our family that, oh, my gosh, we're not in we're not in Kansas anymore. You know? <laughs> literally. You know, literally, we're not. <laughs> and uh, so you sort of put yourself in a, in a, in a weird spot, and... And uh, so we, I, I told Connie, I mean, I'll never forget. We, it was, it was just after Christmas, and we were, in, and I said, we're, we're in for a fight. We're in for a long, it's a long haul here. And uh, so we knew that we had a, a, a few years to dig out, 
and uh, it was going to be a grind. And we had a football coach, thank goodness he was a grinder, uh, in Rich Brooks. Um, he wasn't afraid of the, of, the, of the difficult task we had ahead of us. And, and then we hired this, you know, we hired some really good coaches, uh, one by the name of John Cohen, who was a grinder and, and understood what we were up against, um, who believed in what we were doing. And Mitch, I'm trying to bring up the good stuff that happened I in did. your career. That's one of the great things. It was one of the great <laughs> the things. The good stuff, not the bad stuff. No, it was really good. And, you know, I, I think about our coaches. You know, I mean, think that that stable of coaches we had early on, John, was a great stable of coaches. And we started you know, hiring a Craig Skinner and and you and people that, that came in and changed culture and changed the way we thought. And for Kentucky, um, that was a big deal. Well, you're talking about the coaches. This, this is the obvious question. So – for anybody who's listening to this, who who's into sport administration, the obvious question is: I'm in a compliance meeting at Kentucky, and right in front of me is Greg Byrne. Mm-hmm. Sitting to my left is Scott Strickland. Mm-hmm. Sitting to my right is Rob Mullen. Mm-hmm. Sitting in the front of the room is Kevin Saul, who's mm-hmm. now an athletic director. Mm-hmm. Um, over on this side of the room is Mark Coyle. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have to answer this question a lot, Mitch, mm-hmm. but I don't know if anybody over that short amount of time has, has ever spawned that mm-hmm. many athletic directors. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you address that? How, how, do, you, how mm-hmm. do you explain that? I don't know. We're incredible fortune. Um, you know, they were great great friends um i would like to think that that you know clearly they're really really smart people um you know i just i look around and they're they're, they're, there's book intelligence there's street intelligence and then there's just common sense and and boy they had they they were those were folks that had all of that and um I, i think that had we not had that group of people um at kentucky i'm not sure we're able to flip the script or get to the spot we are and uh, so um, we owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to that collection of people not the least of which the coaches that were involved um, and I don't think the athletes will ever really the student athletes will ever really appreciate the things that went into into that era of 04 05 06 07 08 and that that span of about six to eight years was an amazing amazing set of years that people really made collective decisions that changed the face of an institution, and uh, you know we're. Uh, I mean, I tell you, it's uh, it was is remarkable, and and I'm uh, we're just really fortunate to have those kind of folks in our program. How often do you get asked that question by by by, yeah. by kids who are in school? And I mean that that that's incredible when you think yeah. about it. How, how often do people bring that up to you? Yeah, a lot, and I think that it also it also it, it it is a little bit of a hey, it makes it look too easy. You know, hey, if I just show up and I work at Kentucky, that this—that's not the case. It, it wasn't. It isn't Kentucky. It is the people, and is those people being remarkably talented, and they all understood the effort that it took, the time and commitment that it took, and and the care that it took to get what they were going to get done. It, you know, it, Rob Mullins had a great line, uh, and I use it. We all use it today. I think you probably use it well. We must match resources to expectations. And you have this expectation of being wanting to be an AD and the resource that goes along with it. What is the resource that goes along with it? It's your sweat equity and your effort and your ability. You, you have some innate talents that you can put to use. But unless you, you foster that and you put there, it's not an eight to five gig. It's not, it's not a, you got to sweat a little bit, you got to cry a little bit, and you got to have some, some, something in the game. 
And, you know, there's a great picture of Kevin Saul. I'll never forget it. He's, we've lost a soccer. It's a men's soccer game for Pete's sake. It's not going to change the needle on anything that we do. But there's a picture he keeps in his office of him bending over a player and holding the young man's shoulders. And, and, and I don't know the caption on the picture, but his wife got it for him and framed it up for him. It sits in his office and says, keep going. I think that's what it says. It says, keep going. And I thought, man, that's the essence of what we're about. No matter what, keep going. How many total athletic directors division at the Division One level mm-hmm. have worked for you at this point? At one point in time, it was eight. And there's a couple guys that have gone on to other different roles. So there was eight at, at, uh, at the Division One level. And uh, and that's, you know, I'm, I think it's really cool. I mean, I enjoy that very, very much. I, I enjoy watching guys go on and achieve what they want to achieve. And I think some people get – I'm not. I don't want to be greedy or hoarding their talents. I think it's that's that'd be horrendously wrong on my part. Um, I want them to go and I want their families to find uh, the same kind of success and joy and hopefully enjoyment of this thing that I have. It's been an incredible run for 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 Connie and I, and, and we have absolutely loved every minute. Not the losses. I don't like losing, but uh, the the rest of it. It's been an amazing, amazing run um, of. Being able to be around an incredible, incredible group of people in college athletics, and I don't say it just Kentucky. The fact that we get to spend time with the Cohens and and the Stricklands and those folks in that environment, then we get to go and compete, and we get to walk and on fields and courts and do it. It's an amazing deal. It doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen unless you have relationship. And that's why I tell people all the time. I said this whole thing of technology is wonderful, but you got to make sure you maintain relationship. And I truly believe that's what it's all about. So I'm, I'm fortunate enough to interview as the baseball coach at Kentucky. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we were at dinner, and something really interesting happens at dinner. You walk in the restaurant, um, and young Scotty Barnhart's with you. Oh, man. And really well-behaved, yeah. and a little guy, uh-huh. not so little anymore. No. Little guy. Uh-uh. And I'm just struck now to think, you have always involved your mm-hmm. family and what you do. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of separation there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are part of what you do. Mm-hmm. That's not normal in our profession either. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to talk a little bit about your family and, and how you, you really included them in almost everything you do. Yeah, there's a there's a show on TV. It's called Blue Bloods, and you know it's about the, the cop family in New York and Tom Selleck and all that stuff. And so we joke around. They always talk about the family business. And I think sort of we've got the family business going on, you know, and uh, Scott is, uh, is the last of the line of, of my children. He is now an administrator under Kevin Saul at, at Murray State, the associate AD up there, and, and really learning and doing really amazing, cool stuff. And it's fun to watch him, listen to him talk and what he does. My daughter, Kirby, is, is a deputy AD at Lexington Christian Academy, head volleyball coach. My other daughter is in education. She teaches up in Indianapolis. So sort of in the business of education and working with young people and hoping make, making people better. And it's really been fun. Um, but our family's always been involved, and we always made a decision. Connie and I made a decision early on. Our kids are going to get raised in locker rooms and dugouts and, and understanding 9 o'clock tips, they get to come. Now, you understand to pay the price in the morning, you're going to get up and still go to school, and we're not going to fuss about it. You know, you get to go. And we, we may be eating Taco Bell on the way home, um, you know, or something like that. I mean, that was not unusual for us. You know, okay, you're doing, half, you're doing your homework at halftime. I, I mean, I think people thought we were the worst parents in the world, you know. <laughs> yeah, good gosh, what are you doing? These kids, these kids are horrific, you know. And, and, uh, but, uh, you know, we were very disciplined with our kids. And, but we, there was 
um, an opportunity for them to see firsthand the life lessons that went on in college athletics. And I thought that was hugely important. They saw the good and the bad. They saw the young people that made mistakes and were allowed to find their way through them. They saw people that succeeded. They were there for the celebrations. They were there for. They had the chance to interact with adults, and they learned how to act with adults. And I thought that was important. Um, they weren't always perfect, um, but I thought they handled themselves in a way that um, they were mature a little bit beyond their years, and certainly much more mature than their father was at their age. Well, I, Mitch, I have to say, on behalf of everyone who who has worked for you. Um, and there's an all-star cast of those people. Mm-hmm. I think to a man, if you ask somebody who worked for Mitch Barnhart about Mitch Barnhart, you're going to say he's really intelligent, he's extremely passionate, and when he says something, he means mm-hmm. it. And on behalf of all those people, we we want to thank you for yeah. for help helping you know uh, mold our lives and and make us better people and and, and helping us in this, this great profession. Yeah, I appreciate it, John. It's, it's been an honor. Um, I love spending time together and, and I hope that, uh, we're, we're teachers. Uh, I always admired that about you and your family and your dad was a professor and, and, you know, we want to be teachers and I think that's what we're called to do. And I think what we do is, is, is an extension of that. And I, so I hope that we were, able to do that for for many and we continue to do that and i thank you for the time today it's been awesome and i love doing it and i look forward to competing and and continuing to cross paths in the sec thank you so much mitch thanks john What a great conversation with mitch barnhart the director of athletics university of kentucky and uh john you were part of a group of people that were all kind of gathered there in Lexington at one time that now have scattered, but they've scattered for the right reasons because all of them are in roles much like the one that you're in here at Mississippi State, director of athletics, some that have gone on to be deputy ADs of other programs. I think of Rob Mullins and Lisa Peterson who were working together at Oregon, who were together uh, working for Mitch at Kentucky at one time. It's really impressive when you look at who used to be in that room in those staff meetings and where all those people are now. Yeah, certainly. I think he said there were seven current athletic directors that, that had worked for Mitch Barnhart at Kentucky. And, uh, yeah, you go to those compliance meetings. There's Scott Strickland sitting over here. There's Mark Coyle over here at Minnesota, who's now at Minnesota. Um, you know, Rob Mullins. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Greg Byrne, you know, obviously, who's been here now, now at Alabama. There, there's just a, a lot of those guys. It was, it was a special time. And I think one of the, the thing that meant the most to me is Mitch wants the folks he works with to go out into the world and fulfill their dreams. And that's something I want too. You know, as a baseball coach, I wanted all my assistants to have the opportunity to become a head coach just like I did. I think that's part of the job is helping those people. And uh, certainly nobody's done that better than Mitch. Was Mitch Barnhart one of the guys who was kind of on the front end of that philosophical change in how people were running athletic departments, the way you went about it. I think about when he was at Oregon State. When he left Tennessee, went to Oregon State, became the athletic director there, and then moved on to Kentucky. But you were still at a time when you had a lot of former coaches, former football coaches that were running departments and not necessarily the the business, fundraising type guys that you see a lot of today. Was was Mitch kind of on the front end of all that? I think he was, um, but certainly you could say – that he worked his way from up in the ground floor. And, you know, he, he was an intern. He was a guy who, who 
you know, he was a radio guy at Ottawa at that, Ottawa University. That's exactly yeah. right. He wore so many different hats. I, I think what's special about Mitch is he can go to almost any part of an athletic department and say, I, I've experienced what you're experiencing right now. I've done it all. And I think that really helps. Yeah, he and Jeremy Foley were so competitive with one another, those two programs, Kentucky and Florida, when, when I was there. And I think part of the reason they were was not just where their programs were within the, the, the landscape of a particular sport, but they were similar in the paths that they took. Jeremy started in the ticket office, I think, worked his way all the way up to the top spot. You mentioned Mitch started as an intern, did everything, worked his way up. And I think just th- those paths seem like it, it puts those guys in a spot where they feel like they're, they're kind of similar in what they do and maybe adds to the fire a little and bit. And coincidentally, those two guys are both graduates of the Ohio University you know, sports management school, which was one of the pioneering schools, one of the first schools to have that program. So, and uh, Mitch just talked about that as well. So, yeah, I, I think those two are a great comparison. They were together for a long time in this league. And, uh, you know, when, when you need advice, when, you know, those guys might have experienced something you haven't yet, I, I know they're a great resource for all of us in the Southeastern Conference. It is a large tree with many branches that Mitch Barnhart planted a long time ago when he got into this business, one that continues to be successful, including with a guy sitting just down to my right here, John Cohen. Another great conversation uh, here on the John Cohen Podcast. And, of course, our thanks to you for listening, and thanks to Mitch Barnhart for his time and uh, sharing some of his stories with John today. Now, remember, we've got more of these. If you missed any in the archive, go back, check those out. Some great stories with folks who have ties to Mississippi State, other from around the Southeastern Conference and even just some great characters along the way. Uh, You can listen to those in the archive, subscribe to the podcast wherever you receive your podcast from. It'll be delivered to you each and every time we have a new episode and we've got more great conversations coming, so we encourage you to stay tuned. For John Cohen, I'm Neil Price. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you here next time on the John Cohen Podcast.